This is Get Uncomfortable, the podcast where we talk race, politics, religion, and all the things with me, Adam Smith. We all know that institutional racism and anti-Blackness create real-life hazards for Black and Brown folks. But what if I told you that racism is a real public health crisis that is literally and scientifically killing Black men? Today, we're joined by Dr. Leanne Woods-Burnham, an assistant professor at Morehouse School of Medicine. Dr. Woods-Burnham's research focuses on uncovering and addressing the reasons why Black men in the U.S. are more likely to be diagnosed with prostate cancer and have worse outcomes than any other group of men. There are multiple factors at play that drive this health disparity, and her team tackles these areas scientifically, looking at genetics and biology within a biomedical lab and in the clinic, but also in the community by partnering with key leaders to increase education and make cancer screening accessible for all in an era where medical racism and limited access to healthcare is very much alive and prevalent. Her overarching goal is to develop therapeutic strategies using a precision medicine approach to improve overall survival for late stage prostate cancer patients and to ultimately reduce worse prostate cancer outcomes for Black men. She is a graduate of Loma Linda University School of Medicine and the University of Akron. Dr. Leanne, I'm honored that you chose to get uncomfortable with us. Welcome. Thank you. I'm so happy to be here. Can you talk, Leanne, because you have an interesting journey, and then we'll get into the medicine, but talk a little bit about your journey through undergrad, research, and medical school. Yeah, so um, I went back to, uh, to get my bachelor's degree as an adult learner. So uh, I was 28. I was a single mom at the time. And um, I enrolled in school full time because uh, I realized that, you know, I needed a, a degree to get further in life than I was at that point. And um, enrolled at University of Akron in their biology pre-med program. And uh it was pretty difficult juggling full-time school, full-time work. And um, after my first semester there, I was uh, approached to be a part of a few scholarship programs. And one of them was Choose Ohio First, which you know about. You spearheaded at University of Akron at that time. And um, I was very blessed to be one of the first few students to be a part of that program. And I remember um, opening up my mail on my porch at my house and seeing that I had been accepted into this program. And for me, I just broke down crying on the porch because I realized I would be able to focus on my studies full time and not have to work as many hours because the scholarship was going to cover a lot of my living expenses and have more time to be a mom and spend time with my son while finishing school. And so opportunities like that really shaped my time at University of Akron. I also was exposed to 
research. So in addition to going into medicine, I learned what basic science was all about and was able to do an internship at um, Cleveland Clinic at the Learner Research Institute. And that was my first time being in a basic science lab. And the experience, uh, you know, Cleveland Clinic is world renowned. So people that I met there and opportunities that I had, I'm forever grateful for. Um, But what I did learn while I was there in the lab, and then also shadowing some physicians in the clinic, that was the first time where I saw um, that disease can affect people differently based on race. And um, sometimes there's genetic and biological factors that, that play a part in that. So that was my first time sort of being exposed to that. After graduating from University of Akron, I moved across the country to California. I'd never been to the West Coast before and enrolled at Loma Linda University School of Medicine. Um, They had a center for health disparities and molecular medicine there. And so um, while I was accepted into a few PhD programs across the nation, I chose Loma Linda because I wanted to learn how to do science beyond science. I wanted to learn how um, science could cross over to the community and how we could really um, affect positive change in marginalized and disadvantaged populations. And um, that's where I really honed in my studies on prostate cancer um, in Black men, which I'm sure we're going to discuss quite a bit on this talk. Uh, So I did my dissertation looking at how psychosocial factors and stress and discrimination over time actually can affect the biology of cancer tumors and then response to treatments over time. And so that was um, what I looked at at Loma Linda when I graduated there. I went on to work with um, Dr. Rick Kittles at City of Hope Comprehensive Cancer Center, which is near LA in California. And um, that was a very exciting time where I learned how to um, work with clinicians to make a difference in clinical trials that are available for patients and, and really looking to see how we can make sure that people who are at highest risk for aggressive cancers, which are quite often black and brown individuals, to make sure that they have access to cutting edge treatments that may not be even FDA approved yet. Um, and then currently, I am at uh, Morehouse School of Medicine in Atlanta, Georgia, and um, working on, you know, prostate cancer in black men. It's scientifically in science, we call it at the bench. So we're at the bench. I have a lab here, a team here where we run experiments and we look at ways to basically cure prostate cancer is the goal. Also working to develop a community prostate cancer screening program. Um, I do have quite a bit of experience doing that in California and in LA. And so trying to get something like that up and running here in Atlanta so that um, men can receive prostate cancer screening at an age that is appropriate for them based on their family history, rather than what they may be offered when they go into the their doctor's clinic who, who may or may not offer the test for them, even though these men are at higher risk. So we go into the community to make sure that these men know that they are at higher risk and what they uh, that they can go ahead and be tested and take control of their own health in that way. So that's a, I don't know, two minute, three minute overview. <laughs> Well, and the crazy part, I mean, first off, you know how proud I am of you every day, every day. Y'all, that is my student. Okay. All right. (laughs) That it blows my mind to, you know, having lived in Akron and, you know, where people 
love and adore LeBron James and thinking about the billboard that was on the building next to the queue in Cleveland that said, we're all witnesses. The coolest part in my life is bearing witness to this kind of thing with people, right? It wasn't, Leanne's great, y'all. Ain't nothing super. I mean, she's special to God and her family and me and others. One of the things, Leanne, before we get into the meat of the research, why it is, you know, because we continue to talk in higher ed about these struggles. We need people underrepresented to go into STEM fields and to take on medicine and to take on engineering and to take on these things. What are some of the real challenges that are in place for why other non-traditional people of color don't go into STEM study and then become doctors? And what are some of the things that were in place for you that helped you kind of clear that pathway so that you could realize your impact, right? And you're not just impacting the lives of your family, you're impacting a nation. And so what are some of the things that are the barriers to other Black women, other non-traditional people, other people who are first generation or second generation or low income pursuing degrees in STEM? And what were some of the things that were in place for you that you can look back on to say, those were the things that really cleared the pathway for me to be where I am today? Yeah. So I guess to fully answer that, I should back up a little too why I even wanted to do this in the first place. I always knew as a little girl, I wanted to be in medicine or science, something along those lines. But while I was an undergrad, my dad, who was a black man, he called me while I was leaving physics class and he was crying on the other line and I didn't know what was going on. And he told me he had just been diagnosed with prostate cancer. So at the time he was 50 years old, I didn't know anyone in my family who had cancer, I didn't know anybody who had prostate cancer. And so from him having it, I really sort of dove into, you know, what is this disease and why, how could he have gotten this so young? He's otherwise healthy. The man never gets a cold or a flu. So this is my first time even seeing him any sort of it with illness. And so um, I learned quickly that prostate cancer is a disease that definitely affects black men more aggressively and at younger ages. And the disease just looks different in Black men a lot of times. And so when I knew that I wanted to study that and I started to go into the lab and go into the clinic as part of my educational journey, I also quickly realized that I wasn't seeing minority clinicians and scientists. I wasn't seeing a lot of them in the decision-making rooms. And So I knew that I wanted to be in a position where I could be trained and at the end of the day, I could be one of those people that are making these decisions because I knew I have a family member who's a black man who's affected by this disease. So on top of being scientifically trained, I could also have a personal background to put with that. But at the same time, as a a single mom at that time and living in West Akron, which a part of West Akron, which is not, you know, the upper echelon of Akron or Ohio or the United States, really. I saw that I wanted to be different, but I didn't really see how I could be different. I didn't have like a 
I didn't have anybody else who was a scientist that I could look at and say, oh, I want to be like that. So I knew what the end goal, what I wanted to, to be, but I just had no idea how to get there. So I said, well, just let me just get this degree and work hard. And I definitely am a woman of faith. And so I felt that God was leading me that direction. And I actually prayed for signs. And I and I literally got would show me certain things where I would say, oh, my gosh, that's exactly what I needed to see or hear this day. So I knew I was going towards my calling, um, but I didn't have any idea how I was going to navigate through. And so once I started on the journey, what I found was that there would be individuals who would see me and them and reach out. And mentor me. So whether that was you as part of the Choose Ohio First STEM program, or I think of Dr. Janet Houghton, who uh, is a woman from England that was a department chair at Cleveland Clinic at the time, where I had interviewed with her and I had interviewed with someone else to be able to just be be an intern for the summer. And when I interviewed with the other person, they told me, well, what are your goals? And I told him and he said, um, those are pretty lofty goals. Not a lot of people make it to that. And then I left his office and went to Dr. Houghton's office. And she told me, she said, um, you know, I can tell you're pretty green and you have a lot to learn. She's like, but in speaking with you, you remind me of myself um, at your age and trying to do what you're trying to do as a, as a mother. And um, she was like, you're going to you're going to be just fine. You just need to be in the right environment. So I would love to have you join my lab. And so even though she wasn't doing the exact science I was interested in, I knew, let me pick that mentor. She's going to be the one to help me. Um, and so it, that's that has happened in my life. I in any sort of situation, whether I'm at work or not, I could be at the grocery store, I could be at a gas station. I look at every conversation with the individual for how can we help each other? Because you just don't know where life leads you. I met one of my best mentors at a barbecue at a family picnic. And just in talking with her, realized um, what she did, she realized what I did, and she became a mentor for me. And so it's I'm very grateful because I, I am where I am because of my mentors. And so I'm intentional about who I mentor after me and also realizing that everything that you see on paper isn't um, a prediction of how somebody will necessarily turn out. There's certain personality traits and there's certain passion for um, for a want for change that some individuals just have. And when I see that, I realize we can teach the skills, but you can't teach that passion and that dedication that that person is already coming with. And so I really like to mentor those types of individuals when I see them struggling to make it to their end desire goal. And it's so true. I mean, I hope Dr. Houghton and all the rest of the mentors that you have know that you are Dr. Assistant Professor Leanne Woods Burnham. I mean, that's that's just crazy. I can't tell you the number of students of mine who've been told over time, oh, you'll never get into PT school by other people. Well, yeah. How about I tell my students what they're going or not going to do? When I think back on your journey and I think about Leanne graduated with almost a 4.0 <laughs> from, from the University of Akron, but it was still tough to get medical schools to look at you, you know, I mean, applied all over the place. And I still remember talking to deans of admission of some of Ohio's best, because you're just a kid from Akron too. You want to yeah. leave Ohio? Your husband's from Ohio. I mean, we are, we're trying to stay here. And 
I remember shaking, literally almost shaking these folks over the phone and saying, just interview her. Just get her, get to the interview because she'll, she's going to be able to do the work. I promise you, medical school, doctoral study is not going to cripple Leanne Woods. And it's just getting that through to people. And I think, I think of my pastor similarly, who said to me once, all you have to do is be in God enough to see when doors are open and faithful enough to walk through, even though you don't know why. And it's made me think of, remember the Michael Jackson, Billie Jean video when it's ooh, ooh. And every time he steps, the road lights up, but you got to take the step. You got people ask me, Adam, you've lived all over the country. Yeah. God opens doors. I don't know. Yeah. At some point you live by that. And my kids say to me all the time, I wish God would talk to me like he talked to people in the olden days. I said, God's talking. You just aren't tuned in. Talking through, like you said, talking through other people, talking through those doors that open, just like happens with young people, like with you, when you were an undergrad, we don't know the lights on the runway. So people are really hesitant and kind of edge forward to make sure that they don't fall off the edge. Now, the difference is you're a runway for thousands of other people. And they can say, okay, here's where you go. Here's where I got to pull up. Here's where I got to be mindful. So- just a really, really uh, inspiring story. Yeah. I wanted to get a little bit into the work because okay. you kind of alluded to this around this idea that literally prostate cancer is killing black men and the the tie back to racism and these other things. So talk a little bit about what your findings have been about and what the data shows about black male mortality, um, the age in which you're diagnosed with prostate cancer, lay that foundation for us in that through line. And then we'll talk about maybe some of the reasons why. Okay. So black men are um, much more likely to be diagnosed with prostate cancer than any other race or ethnicity in the U.S. So we have to start with that. One in six Black men will be uh, diagnosed with prostate cancer in their lifetime. Um, A lot of people think of prostate cancer as not an aggressive disease or that it's a slow-growing disease. And that is true for a lot of men in the nation. It just doesn't happen to pan out that way a lot of times for Black men. Um, black men are much more likely to be diagnosed in their 40s and 50s, whereas white men, it's it's a higher age, more like 60s. Um, and the disease is more aggressive when Black men are diagnosed with it. There's a lot of reasons that go into that that we could talk about. You know, there's genetic reasons, biology reasons, access to healthcare reasons, socioeconomic status. Uh, There's just a lot that goes into why, but what has not changed over the past few decades is that we know Black men are likely to be diagnosed earlier. Now, the sad part, the, the devastating part is that prostate cancer is extremely curable if you catch it in early stages. So according to American Cancer Society, if you're diagnosed with prostate cancer and the prostate cancer is still located only within your prostate, you have a greater than 99% survival rate five years out. So that's amazing. Um, 
And the other great news is we have a pretty good screening tool in the form of a blood test. So it's called a PSA test, which stands for prostate specific antigen. It's just you're going to the doctor anyways, you know, getting your cholesterol and blood pressure and everything else checked. It's just one more test that's added into the blood work. And if your PSA is elevated, then it sort of sends a red flag to your doctor. Like, let's look into this further. Doesn't mean you have prostate cancer, but it certainly is a red flag to at least look into it. And then you go down that road and find out whether or not you have prostate cancer. Let me let me jump in real quickly because yes. this is really important because y'all need to know when I go to the doctor to get blood work, I text Leanne. Okay. <laughs> and I know I'm not the only one. Leanne, no. what do I need to tell this guy? Okay. Yeah. Because sometimes the docs say, Well, you don't need that. You only need that every five years. No, no, no. And if Leanne, if if my student tells me that I so I text the doctor when I'm getting my blood work. And I'll say, no, or I'll text Leanne and she'll say, well, they need to do the PSA. And sometimes the docs are ready to do it and it's part of the orders and sometimes it's not. But every single time I insist because Leanne told me so, right? Leanne is a expert on the planet in this PSA stuff. And this doesn't mean, so all the brothers who are saying, bro, I don't want that test where, you know, I've got to, you know. I got to have the rectal exam and all these other things. This is just part of your normal blood work is what Leanne is talking about. Mm -hmm. Um, Getting that test. Why is it sometimes that if your doctor is not a person of color, that they don't understand that that test is vital for black men? So sometimes you can't all the way think that it is explicit, you know, or over bias going on with the clinicians, because what has happened in our nation Racism in science and medicine is so ingrained and embedded in so many areas that we really have to backtrack on this. So clinicians, they go off of screening guidelines by different um, organizations and entities. And what has happened is, specifically in the case of prostate cancer, is these screening guidelines were made looking at huge studies, over 200,000 men, that's a lot of men for, for studies, looking at huge studies that have shown that Testing for prostate cancer too early leads to unwanted side effects and doesn't uh, necessarily make a difference in how long a person lives. So if you're you're looking at that when you're making a guideline, you're thinking, oh, yeah, this makes sense. Let's delay screenings. However, when you look at the men in these studies, over 200,000 men, 95% of them were white men. Less than 5% of the men were men of color at all. Um, there was not any sort of adequate representation of African-American men who suffer the worst from this disease. So basically, when you're going to the doctor and they're saying, technically, we don't even need to discuss prostate cancer screening till you're 55, they're going off of the guidelines. So they're technically, and I'm doing quotes in the air, doing the right thing, but um, they are not necessarily realizing those guidelines are not made for black men at all. Now, there's certain organizations that realize this. American Cancer Society is one of them. Prostate Cancer Foundation is another where they stepped back and said, hey, if we wait till 55, we're leaving black men out. And so very recently, I'm talking about like since 2017, um, these organizations have started to say, if you're black, you should be screened when you're 45 or even 40 if you're a black man and you have family members who have been diagnosed before. But not every clinician 
is aware of that or willing to do it. I have gotten into it personally at doctor's appointments with my husband who they just are not willing to run a PSA test even though my husband is in his 40s and has had several family members who have prostate cancer. So it's almost like we have to argue back and forth and force the test and then find a new doctor after that. Um, but it's it's just extremely frustrating that there's still a large amount of doctors that aren't aware of this because they're following guidelines that are made for white men. And in LA, um, when I was in LA, we published a study in California and Southern California um, 54% of black men, their doctors don't even talk to them about prostate cancer, let alone screen them for it. So that is, um, it's, it's still very much alive and it, and it, it's, it go, looks at, it goes into how these recommendations are made in the first place. Are black men included in these key studies? When we're looking at a disease that affects them, are we including them in the studies? So it's just a lot, um, of, discrimination really entrenched in the system, how it's been set up over the past few decades. Well, deeply, deeply institutional, right? I mean, that's, yeah. that's how it's, I keep calling it the smoke at the nightclub, right? You stop smelling it after a while till you get home and you realize you stink. Then you got to wash it out of your clothes, your hair, your skin, your everything. And it isn't everything that is America. Right. Even our medical system where you have somebody like literally telling you, no, you don't need to worry about this. Well, I'm trying to take my doctor's advice. And so rather than self-advocate, because we don't know what to advocate for. And that's why this education and Leanne's work is so important, is creating some of those through lines, not just for black men, but the people who love us to say, when you go to the doctor, you insist on when they do your blood work that they run this PSA. Yeah. And if they say no, 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 no. I, I want you to run this PSA, right? Yeah. And making sure that that's happening and that that screening is happening regularly. Leanne, talk a little bit about some of the other reasons, because I know that you were talking about blood samples. There was one point where we were talking about blood samples and increased levels of certain things in black men's blood. Talk about some of the findings of some of the studies that you've done and how, how, what are some of the other reasons or the insinuations that are often made about the why? So why are black men dying? Of, why are they being diagnosed in their 40s or 50s? And I remember one time you told me most white men get prostate cancer and they're so old, they die of something else. Yeah, that's very, very true. Yeah, and that's a blessing. You know, that's a blessing for that to even to be the case. There's so many reasons why black men are more likely to get prostate cancer. I do like to point out when I'm talking to black men that we can't rule out the role of DNA. So even if you eat, you know, grass every day and you just are at the gym 23 out of 24 hours and you're doing everything right in terms of your health that you can do. At the end of the day, you cannot change your DNA. And so there is a genetic, there are a few genetic reasons that we know that black men who live in the United States are more uh, likely to be diagnosed with prostate cancer. We see these prostate cancer trends in black men from West Africa. And so that makes sense. The way our nation is set up, black people were brought here, the transatlantic slave trade from countries in West Africa. So our DNA 
matches that DNA. And so the prostate cancer risk there is the same as it is here. Um, and so uh, what we try to do in science is if we can figure out genetic reasons and uh, biomarkers that are targetable with drugs, then that's the goal. That's called precision medicine. And that is the future of medicine. So instead of a person coming into the office and saying, okay, you have cancer, we're going to do uh, this standard treatment that everybody gets, you know, precision medicine is looking at a person's genetic makeup and saying, oh, you have this variant or you have this mutation and we have this drug that'll target that. So this, this medication will be tailored for you and you'll have better outcomes. That's called precision medicine. And that's already happening in the U.S. and having great results for white America. <laughs> so we don't see this precision medicine currently for um, non-white people in America. So it, it, that's Native American, that's, uh, you know, Latino, it's it's African American, um, even Asian American to a certain extent. So we, our goal is we have this precision medicine that's working great for others. We need to be able to tap into this for our populations that we know are at a higher risk for the disease who deserve precision medicine just as much, if not more in those settings. And so my lab looks at a gene called HER2, which you may think, you know, that's a little weird. HER2 is a breast cancer gene. So that affects women. Um, what we found is we had some prostate cancer samples and looking at the, the tissue in, in the cancer samples, we saw that black men were expressing this HER2 gene and their tumor. So a light bulb went off and it, we realized, wait, there's already drugs that are FDA approved that treat HER2 really well for breast cancer patients. Why can't we use this in prostate cancer patients? And why couldn't we use this in black men who, who would be more likely potentially to be have these HER2 positive prostate cancer? So we looked um, at, over the past 10 years research that's been done. And what we saw was that there were actual clinical trials where men with prostate cancer were being treated with HER2 drugs. Guess who was not included in those studies? Black no. men with HER2 tumors. So the clinical trial reached a dead end. You know, patients today with prostate cancer are not treated with anti-HER2 drugs because the trial was faulty to begin with because we weren't including a diverse population of people in the study. And so now we've circled back and uh, my lab is looking at this. It's funded by um, Prostate Cancer Foundation and the Department of Defense currently um, who believe in this project and fund this project. And, and we, we're um, figuring out, is, is this something that we can target? So that's just one thing. There's a lot of others in the science world that are looking at the role of vitamin D in Black men with prostate cancer, because we know that Black people are more likely to be vitamin D deficient. And that just has everything to do with the amount of melanin in the skin and how our bodies make vitamin D in response to the sun. And the darker your skin is, uh, the sort of more difficult it is for your body to make vitamin D. Um, we have different um, what's what we call single nucleotide polymorphisms that are basically just genetic variants that are different uh, according to genetic ancestry that can be targetable. So, um, so yeah, there's a, there's a lot of people looking at the different scientific reasons and it takes, it takes a lot, a lot of effort. Well, and it takes huge levels of coordination and advocacy, right? And to have a stage of somebody like the Morehouse School of Medicine, like um, City of Hope, that are committed 
to the work, but also the committed to the advocacy and including the community, because the reality is there's a lot of issues related to community mistrust of of the medical field, and rightfully so. Mm -hmm. studies upon studies upon studies and harm that's done. Talk a little bit about the community's role in your work and in your research and in your ministry and why there is such a distrust for the medical field on behalf of especially brown folk, black folks, indigenous folks in particular. Yeah. I mean, if we're not able to translate our findings to the community, then it's, you know, it's all a big waste of time if it's not making a difference in people's lives. We saw that with the COVID pandemic, for sure. It's one thing to have a discovery, and it's another thing to to get the population to buy into what science is saying. Um, so we rely heavily on community. In order to further precision medicine, it is important for us to have Black and Brown people to be willing to participate in research studies and clinical trials. And a way to increase that trust is for us as scientists to be transparent. And so that is not always the case. Look, there's there's good and bad apples everywhere. We see that, right? We, we see it in, in every walk of life. And so the, the same is true for science. We had a situation in 2018 where basically as scientists, we, we make our discoveries by using human samples and human cells that we grow in the lab. And then we treat these cells and then we see how these cells respond. It's super vital for us to have access to these cells. And even though prostate cancer affects black men way more often, for those of us looking at prostate cancer and needing to use cells from prostate cancer patients, there at the time was only one cell line that was from an African-American patient. So you could go and you could purchase cell lines from white patients, but many of them, but you can only purchase one African-American. And so a few years ago, a second African-American prostate cancer cell line came around. And so we were so excited. Oh, there's another cell line we can use and do these treatments and see how cancer acts differently in black men versus white men. And so while uh, the lab I was in, which is Dr. Rick Kittle's lab at the time, while I was in that lab, um, we realized running some tests on this new cell line that this cell line was not um, from an African-American patient. We did ancestry analysis and saw that the, the cell line was from a white patient. Um, even more disturbing, the tissue was not prostate cancer tissue. It was kidney cancer. So basically, there was a white kidney cancer cell line being sold as a black prostate cancer cell line, which mm. is affecting all these labs that are doing experiments on these cells. It's affecting research money that is going to support projects that are using this incorrect cell line. And so we knew that when we published this, it was going to be sort of rock the prostate cancer scientific world. Um, we ended up publishing it. That paper is called Genetic Ancestry Analysis Reveals Misclassification of Commonly Used Cancer Cell Lines. That was in 2018. And the cell line ended up being pulled off the shelf of a um, multi-billion dollar company that I won't name, but it's no it's no longer sold there. So people couldn't access it anymore. But the, the troubling part was that when we knew that the cell line, where we were getting evidence that there was a problem with it, and we reached out to others that were working with the cell line and let them know, you're going to want to stop. Like, this is not what we all think it is. It was 
that's when you saw who was a real health disparity ally and who was not. Um, mm. because some continued to use it because they're getting money to use it and they're furthering their careers by using it. Um, but at the end of the day, they're not concerned about black men with prostate cancer. There's no way you can if you're willing to do something like that. Well, because so. it's it's skewing for all of us normal people. Um, it's skewing the findings, right? So if you're uh, if you're determining findings based on tools and equipment and a recipe that is not, if you're deciding if the cake recipe is good and you use sugar instead of salt or vice versa, in the end, you can't determine if the cake is good because you didn't use the right ingredients. Yeah. I'm going to try to simplify it in a theological way, Leanne, because your, your your medical way is it's hard for me, right? And oh, no. but I but no no no, I get it. I 100 percent get what you're saying, and that's the cool part about your ministries. It's real ministry to you that yeah, it's about the grants and it's about the funding, but in the end, it's about the work. It's yeah. about the mission. So many people talk about. Well, but the reason is because black, if black men would eat better and black men would stop drinking and black men would lose weight. Yeah, but we can tie all things back to racism. How about we just go right back? Because there's a reason why there isn't access. You know, there isn't a Whole Foods in West Akron. Let's just keep it 100. There's a reason why you walk into Mickey D's and it costs a dollar to pay for a cheeseburger, but $8 for a salad, right? I mean, those are the things. And then the access to the finances to pay for healthier choices. I've worked at a bunch of different campuses, and I can tell you that based on the finances of the students, the health of the students was completely different. Like you go down there to Tuscaloosa, man, please, everybody's running, everybody's healthy because it's wealthy, yeah. right? Talk about, because the one thing that I still remember you and I talking about is cortisol. Yes. Talk about cortisol levels and what is cortisol and what you found with cortisol in black men's blood and these samples that you've taken and how that through line is to some extent being drawn to some health challenges, including cancer. Yes, but I wanted to acknowledge and validate what you're saying too about access to healthcare and, and all of that, because when we look at the VA system, which is about the most, the best system we can look at to see black people and white people receiving the same level of care. Guess what doesn't exist in the VA system? Prostate cancer health disparities. So we know that regardless of diet, lifestyle, all that, if you if you screen black men at the same rate and early enough as you screen white men, their outcomes are the same. So, mm -hmm. but the whole nation isn't modeled like that. And so um, looking at racism over time and cortisol and, and all that, how, how you mentioned. We, there are studies that are out that show that Black toddlers in daycare have higher levels of cortisol than other um, children in the daycares. And cortisol is uh, our fight or flight hormone in our body. When we're under stress, our HPA axis, which is hypothalamus, pituitary, adrenal gland, but HPA access, it, our bodies make more cortisol and that is um, our stress hormone. So cortisol being in our bodies, it's it's there for a reason to help us to get through a stressful situation. But 
when you're constantly stressed and your cortisol is elevated over time, it leads to um, just worse outcomes in a lot of different settings, not just prostate cancer, but it um, elevated cortisol is just not good over a lifetime for a lot of different reasons. And there was a study that I just saw on MSN News, um, I think it was last month, about how it affects even our brains. You have chronic stress over your lifetime and then you have elevated cortisol. So what I looked at before, um, and, and I'm glad a lot of groups are still looking at this currently, is to see if cumulative stress over a lifetime that's due to discrimination, racism, um, living under federal poverty, uh, all of these sort of things can affect cancer cells. And so what I did was um, had the cells from black patients and then from white patients that had prostate cancer. And then I could treat them with cortisol in the lab. And what happens is if you expose cells to cortisol, if they've had normal functioning of how to handle cortisol throughout a lifetime, they're going to process that cortisol one way. But if you've had so much cortisol in your system over time, over time, over time, when cortisol is, is present at even at, even at more levels, there's like a dysregulation that, that pathway isn't working how it usually would with, within the cell. And so what we saw was we added cortisol to black prostate cancer cells and white prostate cancer cells, the black prostate cancer cells, when they saw cortisol introduced in their little Petri dish, these cancer cells started turning on all these genes that are known to make cancer cells grow faster and genes that we know are known to resist treatments that we give to prostate cancer patients. So it was almost like this cortisol built up over time was preparing the cancer cells to do worse when they would be offered treatment. And so um, I, I also, you know, published on different reasons of why there is this extra stress because it's so multifaceted. And I've heard sometimes when I talk about this study, um, people say, well, you know, um, stress is subjective. So somebody may say, you know, oh, I was, I, I had a hard life. I was stressed out and all this. We actually found the opposite. Um, we've done studies where we looked at, uh, we've, we provided questionnaires where we asked very objective questions, questions like, are you able to pay your bills this month? Have you been incarcerated in the past 10 years? Have the police pulled you over more than two times in the past year? Have you been robbed recently? Um, have you been displaced out of your home? Have you been divorced? Have you had a family member die? These are very, these are not questions of am I stressed or not? It's just a yes or no, <laughs> just a pretty stressful situation. And what we found were that black men who had extremely high levels of stressors in their life, when we then asked them, are you st stressed out or have you experienced stress or discrimination? And they would say, no, they felt like they're just so used to pulling themselves up by them, their bootstraps and, you know, and just waking up and doing it another day and, and just and just living under this high stress so much that to them, this is just life. This is just standard. But what it's doing internally is literally killing. So when we say stress kills and I say stress kills, I mean that literally. I've seen it in Petri dishes, literally. This is so brilliant. 
anti-blackness and racism kill. And it doesn't just kill on the streets of Minneapolis and in the streets of Memphis. It kills in our bodies. That's what that's what Dr. Leanne is telling us, is that, yeah, as black men, we are used to carrying that load. The kind of stuff we deal with on a daily basis would exhaust and destroy a white man. Just one day. <laughs> you can't ma- just... You know, like people have said to me, you know, you're dealing with the poli- people following you at the grocery store when you're in a department store. I don't even notice it anymore. Mm-hmm. Right. Because I what it's just what am I going to do? And so if it's it's much like when you talk about pain and, you know, women's pain, if we're talking one to ten, women are like 36, <laughs> but our pain feels like pain. Right. And so the reality is like the the argument that somebody said, well, stress is relative and it's subjective. No, it's really not. I mean, yeah, I can say I have pain because I had an ACL go out. I haven't given birth to a whole human being for 36 hours. Right. (laughs) That is not even close to the same thing. And so it may feel like pain to me, but it isn't producing the same sustained right? And that's, that's what I'm talking about with black men. It's just daily life. And whether, and part of the things what I, I, I read a couple of pieces on this in preparation for our talk, it, it doesn't matter if the black men are black men that are in prison and are struggling, you know, through the justice system, black men living in poverty, black men in the military, or black men working on wall street or at at Morehouse School of Medicine or at the university that I work at. Racism is alive and well up there. There was a whole black man in the White House who had to apologize more than any white man I've ever heard in the history of my life. So it doesn't matter. The stress of not being black, the stress of anti-blackness, racism, colonialism, all of the things is literally killing people. Dr. Leanne, I want to give you the last couple of seconds what are your biggest for people who are a black man or people that love a black man or people that love a black woman or a Latino person? What are your biggest takeaways? What is the biggest advice that you can give them related to knocking down some of these health disparities? Maybe maybe not in the work like you do, but in their own personal lives. What are some of the things that they can do and they can advocate for their loved ones? To take charge of your own health and and don't wait until you have symptoms. For prostate cancer, we know for sure men do not have symptoms until that cancer is already spread through their bodies and, and usually into their bones. At that point, there is no cure for prostate cancer. So I can't tell you how many men that will tell me, oh, I feel great. I still, I'm out on the court. Like I, I go to work every day. I feel fine. Everything's functioning. And I let them know you're not going to have a single symptom. And so it's important starting at age 40 to ask your doctor if they can test you for prostate cancer. And don't be nervous. Men get nervous because they think prostate cancer is the digital rectal exam, which is putting their finger in there, the doctor's putting their finger in there and and doing the test. That's not what it is, okay? It's a blood test, it's a PSA blood test. And so um, we can all, you know, go ahead and do that. It's not the the end of the world to get a blood test. Um, And so I would say for, for men and women, whether you have symptoms for prostate cancer or any other diseases, it's just important to go to your physician. And a lot of times I hear, you know, even in my own family, you know, oh, well, 
don't don't speak it into existence or don't you know when you start looking for something you're going to find it you know yes we want to push things under the rug nobody wants to go to the doctor nobody wants to have these tests done but at the end of the day you you really aren't going to want to find out when it's too late and so if you have an opportunity to find out that you have a disease that is treatable that is curable in an early stage trust me it's way more beneficial to you and everyone else around you to be able to detect the disease at that stage. And so my biggest takeaway, yeah, would definitely be to take charge of your own health. Make sure you go to your doctor once a year, especially starting at age 40, because it's important not only for prostate cancer, but a lot of other diseases and and just take care of your health in that way. Dr. Leanne, Thank you so much, not only for sharing all your tips and all your information, more importantly, thank you for your work. Um, Thank you for making an impact. Thank you for changing the world. You know, I love you, right? Yes, love you too. I wouldn't be here literally without you. I would still be folding t-shirts at that retail store. (laughs) So thank you. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Get Uncomfortable. Get Uncomfortable is produced in partnership between me, Rachel Hansen, and Adam Smith. There are a variety of ways that you could support the show, including leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts, sharing an episode with a friend, or just reaching out to Adam or myself to let us know what you thought of the show. Um, Our email addresses are in the show notes. So until next time, stay uncomfortable.